If you have a Bible, go ahead and open to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. We are continuing our series. We've titled The Return of the King, appropriately named in Paul's letters to the Thessalonian church. They had been taught a lot about the coming of Christ, and there was false teaching swirling around about his coming. And you may remember from our study of the first letter that this was one of the first recipients of any of Paul's letters. And the gospel had come to them in power, with full conviction. They turned from their pagan idolatry to serve a living God and went from being idol worshipers to examples to the rest of the churches in Macedonia in a matter of weeks. So there had been a powerful move of God. Last week, we looked at Paul's exhortation to them in light of the coming day of the judgment of God when Christ comes to judge the living and the dead. And he said, in light of all of that, his prayer for them is that God would empower a faith that works in them and that they would work out their salvation with fear and trembling, like Paul writes in another language, that we have this call on our lives as believers in Jesus Christ to trust him and rely on him, to depend on him, and to resolve to work out our faith with acts of righteousness and with great resolve. So today, I've titled this message, Signs of His Coming and Faithfully Enduring to the End. Before we get deep into this text, I just want to rejoice with you in the fact that Jesus is coming. Amen? It, he is coming. And he will establish his kingdom on earth at the last. And we will always be with the Lord so that where he is, we may be also. This is our great hope and our confidence that Christ has overcome. And he's going to invite us into his final victory. And we will spend eternity with him in his presence. And we have that as an anchor for us. So we press on to know him and to look toward the grace that's to be revealed to us when we see him face to face. And the good news is, you haven't missed it. You haven't missed it. I think part of what Paul's writing to uh, the Thessalonians about in this chapter will probably make more sense to you if you've heard of any of the Left Behind books and there'd be kind of this fear that maybe the rapture already happened and like, what if you got left behind? Or what if the coming of Christ already happened and you missed out on it? Or what if the day of the Lord was tomorrow? How would you live? And so this is exactly what had happened to the Thessalonian church. There was false teaching swirling around saying that the day of the Lord and the coming of Christ were imminent, as in around the corner, about to happen tomorrow, and people were quitting their jobs and mooching off of one another and living faithlessly because they thought, well, what does it matter? Jesus is coming back tomorrow. Why invest here? Why go out and take up some great act of righteousness or resolve for the kingdom of God if Jesus is coming back tomorrow, if the day of the Lord is upon us? And the modern day equivalent of this is believing in a pre-tribulation rapture in a way that prohibits faithfully living in light of the master's return today. This what does it matter to invest here, to work hard, to labor 
in Jesus' name because we're not going to be here much longer is the exact opposite mentality and attitude that Jesus calls us to in light of his return. It's a burying of resources. It's a, it's a putting of the talent in the ground to use that parable that Jesus told. So we have been told things about the end and about Jesus' coming so that we would be prepared to live faithfully and to endure to the end in the light of his return. And that is what today is all about. We want to look at signs of his coming and faithfully enduring to the end. So with that in view, let's pray and ask the Lord to speak to our hearts before we read his word. Father, we thank you for the miracle of life that you woke us up this morning when you didn't have to. That you moved in our hearts to bring us here underneath your word and you didn't have to give us that gift. So Lord, we pray that you would continue the generosity that you've already shown us this morning and now giving us humble hearts before your word. Hearts that tremble, hearts that delight like thirsty ground to drink in the water of your word. Lord, would you speak to us in a way that changes us and exalts your name. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you're physically able, I invite you to stand with me in honor of the reading of God's word. And I will uh, begin 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. This is verse 1. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Now, quick aside, and I know you're standing, so it'll be a short aside. I want to draw your attention to the fact that the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together with him and the day of the Lord are seen as a simultaneous event, a simultaneous happening where the day of the Lord and the coming of Christ are happening at the same time. We're not going to spend a long time talking about the day of the Lord today because you can go back and listen to David's message on 2 Thessalonians 1 or my message on 1 Thessalonians 5. Paul has written to them much about these topics and he's saying, I don't want you to be alarmed or have your you easily swayed from the truth about the coming of Christ and about the time of his judgment of the living and the dead. He, he speaks of the church's gathering together to the Lord, the rapture, if you will, as happening simultaneously with the day of the Lord and the coming judgment of Christ on the world for its sin. And I'm saying this because as we have seen, as we will see, what you believe about eschatology, study of last things, shapes how you live today. And I don't want anybody in this church to have their faith shaken because you believe some wishful exegesis about getting whisked away before a great time of suffering at the hands of those who hate God and who hate the Lord Jesus Christ. And so that's, that's the aside. These events happening at the same time are gathering together with the Lord when he comes in judgment to rescue his people. So let's continue, verse three. Let no one deceive you in any way, 
For that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was with you, I told you these things? And you know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all powers and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. You guys know I often give you kind of the heart of the text of where we're going today. And so here it is for this day. We must know and love the truth and live faithfully as we wait for the coming and certain victory of Christ. You and I, we must know the truth and love it and live faithfully as we wait for the coming of Christ and his certain victory. What we'll see in this passage are prophecy to remember and then principles to live by from, from what Paul describes in the prophecy. So that's where we're going today. It's, it's prophecy that he calls to mind. He had already taught them these things. They were being quickly shaken from them. And so he's writing a response to some of their questions about what's happening concerning the last times. And I don't know what it is about talking about the end times, but people just kind of have this curiosity, like you lean in, what's going to happen? It feels like we're getting close. I don't know if we are. And we, every time we talk about the end times, we just say, yes, Jesus said that since he rose from the dead and ascended into heaven, you're in the last days. So for the last 2,000 years, you've been in the last days, and it'll be the last days until he comes. Could be 10,000 years from now. But you are living in the last days. And so everything that he writes with the prophecy and then the principles to live by are meant to call you to faithfulness. So first, the prophecy. What are the signs of Christ's coming in our text today that scriptures tell us must happen first before he comes? So if somebody was going to say, could Jesus come back tomorrow? Your answer should be not, well, I could. Well, he could. It's well, have these signs happened yet? What, what are the signs of his coming? No one knows the day or the hour, but Jesus said, you know how to look to the sky and you know when you see a pink sky what that means. I don't remember. Um, but you know what it means about rain and other things. So look and, and know by looking around the times and the seasons. Before Christ returns for his people, the very first sign is that the man of lawlessness must appear. So this first sign is the Antichrist. The man of lawlessness must appear. Now, here's what we know about him from our text and from some others. In verse 7, 
Paul says, already at that time, this was 2,000 years ago until now, there is a mystery of lawlessness that is being restrained, but it's also already at work. Verse 7, you see that? There is a mystery of lawlessness that is already at work and is in some way being restrained right now. And this mystery of lawlessness is what the Apostle John calls in his letters the spirit of the Antichrist. I'm going to read you a couple of verses from 1 John, and then I'll explain. 1 John chapter 4, verse 3. John writes, Every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Okay, so 2,000 years ago, there is a spirit in the world that does not confess that Jesus is from God. Earlier, 1 John chapter 2, verse 18. Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. In, in chapter 4, verse 1, he says, many false prophets have gone out into the world. So he is using Antichrist, lowercase a, and false prophets who teach a false gospel interchangeably. Do you see that? This is a lowercase a antichrist. Spirit of antichrist or the mystery of lawlessness already at work in the world. 1 John 2, verse 22. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. So you can see this is the spirit of the Antichrist. Any teaching that claims to have God apart from the Lord Jesus Christ is a false gospel or a false religion or a false teaching. It is Antichrist. And it is everywhere in the world. And what is most deceiving is that there is teaching that looks Christian that is also anti-Christ because it has a different Jesus. It has a Jesus that has been form-fitted into our image. And so we take what the word says, we pick out the parts that we like, and we have a Jesus who is a lot more likable in today's world and won't result in as much persecution from standing firm with who Jesus truly is. And it is also Antichrist. Now, <clears throat> this spirit of the Antichrist, he, John writes, already in the world. Paul writes here, this mystery of lawlessness, already in the world, being restrained, but now working. But this, this mystery of lawlessness is different than the man of lawlessness. The spirit of the Antichrist, lowercase a, is different than the capital A, Antichrist, who actually will come into the world. And there is in prophecy, and we've talked about this before, these layers where there's this initial fulfillment, and it's kind of like a mountain range where the peaks get bigger and bigger. There have been instances where there have been lawless men who have acted like Paul describes the man of lawlessness acting here, but they were not the capital L man of lawlessness or the capital A antichrist. So here's what we know from our passage about this lawless one. 
when this restraint, whatever is restraining him now, is taken away, and this is what it seems like from John and from Paul, what happens is the enemy doesn't know the times or the seasons. So he's always got a candidate or candidates, just false prophets galore, many, many, many antichrists in the world, false teachers everywhere. But at some point when the restraint is taken away, this capital A antichrist, man of lawlessness, will be revealed. And we know that he is a man. This is not a demon. This is not Satan himself. This is somebody who was born here, had a mom and a dad, maybe grew up in church, and then exalts himself to the place where he doesn't acknowledge any God, any religion, and exalts himself to be God, raises himself up against the knowledge of God. This is a man who is called lawless. This is an interchangeable word for sin. He's like a personification of the sinfulness and the pride of man itself. A man who has scaled to the top of Babel and declares himself to be God himself. In his pride, he exalts himself against every other possible object of worship. Now, the Thessalonians would have known this lowercase a version of this. All the Caesars did this in their day. And you remember, they had present in Thessalonica the cult religion of the emperor. And so, they knew what it was like for the emperor to declare himself to be God and to demand worship from everyone. And they were persecuted, this church, persecuted for not believing on and offering up the, the due worship to the emperor and going along with all the cult worship of their day. So they knew what this was like. And Paul's saying, no, 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 there's a, there's a greater manifestation of this that will happen before Jesus returns. He is called the son of destruction, the only other place that that's used is talking about Judas. There's many similarities. He exalts himself over and against Jesus. Jesus writes about Judas going the way that it was written. He also says, read this with my children the other day. Jesus said in Matthew 26, it's going to go the way that Father God wrote it. But woe to the man who betrays the son of man. It would be better for that man not to have been born. Now it, it is going to happen this way because God has written it out and ordained it. It will happen this way. Just like Jesus knew that Judas would betray him. And he said, it has to happen as it was written, but woe to that man. It'll be better that this man was never born. And it says that he is powerfully deceptive. And this is one of the things that I want you to remember the most about the Antichrist and the spirit of the Antichrist that is already in the world. This is where the principles are going to come in because we're not just talking about that day that could be 2,000 years from now that has zero relevance to your life if you're not alive when it happens because it's always happening. There's always the spirit of the Antichrist in the world. There is always the enemy working powerful deceptions so that he can lead astray those who claim the name of Christ and he can keep people from believing on the true Christ. But when he comes, it will, he will come according to the activity of Satan and there will be supernatural signs and workings that will seek to lead astray those who are not solidly rooted and grounded in their faith in Christ. 
Paul is alluding a lot back to the book of Daniel. I'm not going to read all of this. I'll just refer you back to it. So you can go to Daniel. Read 7 to the back of the book. But in Daniel chapter 11, talks about, now again, there have been iterations of this, but there is an ultimate happening of this that is to come. Forces from this Antichrist shall appear and profane the temple and fortress and shall take away the regular burnt offering. And they shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. He shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant. But the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. I'm going to skip ahead to verse 36. This king shall do as he wills. He shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every God and shall speak astonishing things against the God of gods. He shall prosper till the indignation is accomplished. For what is decreed shall be done. He shall not pay attention to any other God, for he shall magnify himself above all. So Paul is referring back to these and saying, this is yet to come, and it will happen. It will be the last thing that happens before Jesus appears and deals with him at his coming. But you can go to Matthew 24. I don't have time to read it right now. Jesus warns of these things, saying that there's always these false Christs and false prophets that perform great signs and wonders to lead astray, even if possible, even the elect. And he says, see, I have told you beforehand. So all of these things happen. This prophecy is happening in Daniel and then again from Jesus and Matthew and now Paul in 2 Thessalonians 2. He's writing to them saying, I'm telling you beforehand so that you can be ready, so that you can stand firm. Why? Because the second sign, the first sign is the Antichrist. The second sign is the apostasy, that there is going to be an apostasy that happens before the great day of the Lord. Now, in the same way that there are lowercase spear of the Antichrist in the world and then capital Antichrist to come, there have always been apostasies by professing Christians as long as there have been false teachers. But there is a day to come where there will be a great falling away from Christ, those who profess his name. And this should get your attention. It says the reason why is that they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Literally, same thing that he writes about in Romans 1, where The truth of God is clearly seen through all that he has made. God has revealed himself to everyone everywhere. Nobody has an excuse to not believe in the creator God. He has made himself known. And at least to everyone in this room, he has made himself known through the specific revelation of Christ and his gospel. And this loving of the truth means a welcoming of it. And the reason why they don't welcome the truth is because instead they take pleasure in unrighteousness. This is the reason why. There is a a greater love of self and my own pleasure that prohibits real faith in Jesus. Now, the reason why it will be a great apostasy is because there are many who claimed the name of Christ, prayed a prayer 
of salvation, walked an aisle, got baptized, who never truly turned from their sin and placed their trust in the real Christ. They wanted a, a belonging in a church community. They wanted uh, fire insurance so that they knew that their eternal life was okay, but they never actually intended to entrust their lives to the living Christ and to submit themselves to him as their God and as their Savior. And Jesus talks about this with the parable of the sowers, that the sower goes out to sow and that there are seeds that land and plants grow up. They get baptized. And then when persecution arises on account of the word, they fall away. So that plantling could have been there a long time until persecution came and then it's gone. Or others grow up and then later they're choked out by the cares of this life, the deceitfulness of riches. It's, it's the pleasure in unrighteousness that prohibits legitimate faith that looks like denying myself, taking up my cross and following Jesus as my Lord and as my Savior. So because these people did not love Christ or the love of him was outward only, God gives them over to what they want instead of him. This is often how the judgment of God works. It's like people pull on the leash for long enough and then he says, okay, I will let you have what you delight in more than Christ. And then he sends on them a deluding spirit so that they would believe what is false. This is the ultimate judgment of God. There is... No blindness so dark as one that God sends on people and should be for any a terrifying concept. The only way into the light is God's mercy. And once he takes that mercy away, which he does not owe to anyone, there only remains darkness and a storing up of wrath for the day of judgment. So this happens to our great sorrow all the time in the world. People walking away because they were quickly shaken in mind or alarmed just like these believers here. Now theirs was with regards to the truth about the day of the Lord and the coming of Christ. But this is a call, a reminder to stand firm. We're going to get to that. I'm, I'm jumping ahead. I'm excited to get there. But you have need of standing firm because apostasies are happening all around. Even in our own church, people are following false teachers that are in accordance with their pleasures, in accordance with their own designs and desires, rather than how God has revealed himself through his holy word. So Paul affirms the same thing, 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1. Now, the Spirit expressly says that in the latter times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. And the teaching of demons is not some, like, obvious pitchfork, like, they're going off into Satanism. It's anti-gospel, workspace, righteousness, observing these feasts and doing these things, going away from Christ into securing salvation by what I do. 
And Jesus himself warned his disciples against this kind of apostasy in Matthew 24. Listen to these themes that are similar. He said on the Mount of Olives, the disciples come to him privately saying, tell us when these things will be and what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? Jesus answered them, see that no one leads you astray. So he's saying that to you this morning, beloved. This is Jesus talking to you. See to it, it's your responsibility, that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. Now, I think a lot of times when we read that, we think, well, if somebody shows up and he says that he's Jesus, then I'm, of course, not going to believe him. So this doesn't really apply to me. But he's saying there will be teaching about the Christ that is deceitful and false and enticing that you will be tempted to go after, make sure that you don't go after it. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed. Same word that Paul says, don't be quickly shaken or alarmed by these people. For a nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All of these are but the beginning of the birth pangs. Then, later, at the end, they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then, because persecution happens on account of the word and on account of Jesus' name, then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. Beloved, that is a sorrowful verse. He's saying it's going to happen. Many will fall away. What does that mean? It means that they looked like they were following Christ. And then they won't. In spite of the fact that we have these verses and he's saying, make sure it doesn't happen. Many false prophets will arise and they will lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. This is the capital A, apostasy. When the man of lawlessness comes and the signs and the wonders that come by the activity of Satan, they're so deceptive. Lawlessness increases and because people take pleasure in unrighteousness and love themselves and love their safety and love their comfort, they will choose to rejoice in what is not Christ and their love for Christ will grow cold. But, verse 13, the one who endures to the end will be saved. This gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. And so it's clear, there's going to be hatred from outside of the church, and the love of people that you thought were brothers and sisters will grow cold inside the church. And it will happen on a massive, noticeable, worldwide scale one day, because of the activity of the man of lawlessness leading people astray. 1 John chapter 2, verse 19 says, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. It's talking about people that leave the church. They leave the fellowship of the community of faith in Jesus. And the reason why they went out is because they were never truly born again. So why Peter writes in his first chapter of 2 Peter, make your calling and election sure. You don't save yourself, but beloved, examine yourself. See whether you're in the faith. And then jumping ahead again, 
Load your heart down with truth so that you know it and love it. So these are the signs. Antichrist, the apostasy, and then the appearing of our Lord Jesus. This is the main thing that you need to know about the Antichrist. The Lord Jesus will kill him with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. That's awesome. And you must keep it in mind. He is going to come to deceive Jesus' people and seek to lead many people astray. He's going to imitate Jesus' coming and his miracles. And then Jesus will come and bring him to nothing without lifting a finger. This is echo of Isaiah chapter 11 verse 4 when it says he shall strike the earth with a rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked and you can look back in Daniel chapter 7 and talks about the antichrist speaking words against the most high and that he wears out the saints of the most high so I'm drawing your attention to this because I don't want you to think you're not going to be here you could be here And Jesus might let this man of lawlessness wear you out, put you to death for his namesake. And he promises not a hair of your head will perish. But he goes on to say, but the court shall sit in judgment. His dominion shall be taken away to be consumed and destroyed to the end. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the most high. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom and all dominions shall serve and obey him. You want to know where all of history is heading? Right here. To the Lamb of God who has overcome and is alive, seated at the right hand of the Father, his enemies being made his footstool and the last enemy to be destroyed is death. But this is what he says in Romans chapter, ooh, I think it's 13. He says, the God of all peace will soon crush Satan under your feet, your feet. And so having these prophecies, what are these principles that we need to keep in mind to help us for a faithful endurance? One, we have certain victory. We're we're working our way. We've we've worked our way inside to the coming of Christ. And now we're going to work our way back across these prophecies to the principles to extract from them. We have certain victory. Christ reigns victorious now and He is coming and will establish his victory at the last. And there will be times between now and then when it looks like he is losing and where it feels like you're losing. But we worship a Savior who overcame sin and death and the devil by dying. Just at the moment when it seemed like all hope was lost, He was securing eternal hope for his people. So he's not losing. He has triumphed over the enemy at the cross. And just like we say, you want proof when you can't see any sign of it all around you, that God loves you. You can look to the cross and know, how can he who did not spare his own son, not freely with him, give us all things. He loves you. But you can also rest assured that his victory is certain because he has already overcome the enemy at the cross. And now there is just a realization of his final victory that he has already won. And he is being patient, giving people opportunity to repent, giving people opportunity who are within the sound of my voice to say, if you hear his voice, 
do not harden his heart, your heart, but turn to him. He will pardon you in Christ if you repent and come to him for life. And so he is being patient. Even right now, he is allowing the mystery of lawlessness to work in the world. He will allow the Antichrist to come with borrowed power. But this is not some cosmic battle between good and evil that's evenly matched. Where you think that Satan has all this power and you're just kind of like holding on to hope, hoping that it works out. Jesus destroys him without lifting a finger. He is upholding all things by the power of his word. He draws his breath back to himself. Everything turns back to dust. Jesus is the creator and the sustainer of life. He has no rival. He has no equal. He's not battling Satan in a way that's hard for him. I, I always joke around with my boys. When he comes back, he literally tells Michael to go bind him up and put him in chains. He doesn't even do it himself. He's like, yo, Mikey, go take care of that guy. It's, it's easy for him. And so we can trust him. This is, we can rest in him. That all that is left is the final realization of his victory. And we can have hope and confidence in days when it feels like you're losing, in days when, that are to come, when you are faced with choosing your life for Christ, you can trust him through death into life because we know that he's passed from death to life and he has assured the victory. Hebrews 9.28 says it this way, Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. And so the question is, is that you? Are you eagerly waiting for Christ? That's how believers are described. We're eagerly waiting on the return of Christ and we're living faithfully until he comes. So that's first principle. We have certain victory in Christ. Second principle, love the truth, watch out and be faithful. You see what I did there? I gave you like three principles inside the second principle, but you, you need them all. Love the truth, watch out, and be faithful. Do you love Christ and his truth? I mean, love it. I know that we have seasons where it feels like our love has grown cold. But Jesus has not appointed us to a faith that just limps along and actually loves other things more than Christ while we just hang on to the end. He is purging us of lesser loves and cultivating in us a true love of Christ and his gospel truth so that we actually know him. So, Paul's using this coming apostasy as a sign to tell them, no, the day of the Lord has not come yet. No, Christ has not come yet. Yes, you need to get to work and be faithful until he comes. But he also uses it to warn them against the kind of behavior and belief that would lead to apostasy. That behavior and belief is a, is a love of things other than Christ more than Christ. Where there's no love of the truth. In our world, it would be having a spirit of the world work its way into your life. This is a, a perfect description of the world that we live in today, where they, 
They do not love the truth, but instead take pleasure in unrighteousness. It used to be that pluralism kind of looked like you can believe whatever you want to believe. And now it looks like what you believe needs to conform to my preference and my pleasure in unrighteousness. Whatever I want is what is true. And what you believe needs to conform to who I am and my truth. This is the spirit of the Antichrist in the world. It is the opposite of a love of truth. It is a love of what is false, of what is anti-God, of what is anti-Christ. And in the midst of the madness, church, love the truth. Love it. Get it into your bones. Meditate in it day and night. It's possible to hear the truth and to not love it, to be in the church and to hear truth and not be thirsty and love it, to have your heart love other things more than Jesus and his truth. And the Thessalonians had heard these things. That's why Paul says, didn't I tell you this stuff when I was with you? Didn't Jesus teach us these things? And now you're being so quickly moved, so quickly, quickly rocked off of this steadfast belief of what I already told you? Love it more than that. Hear it and love it. Loving the truth of the gospel looks like welcoming it, believing it, delighting in it, and obeying it. If on that day or in the days when apostasy is swirling around us, if you are to stand firm on that day, it will be because you have put doctrinal ballast into your boat so that you're not easily swayed to and fro by every wind and wave of doctrine. You have great need of getting deep, rich, theological truth down deep into your heart so that it weighs you down and gives you balance so that you are not easily swayed. You don't think, well, theology is for my pastors or for those people, but I'm just a simple person and I just follow Christ as best as I can you're going to have your boat capsized if you do not love the truth, if you don't get doctrine down deep into your heart and are rooted and grounded in the love of Christ and you treasure God's word more than your necessary food. The coming deception or the deception that is in the world is so deceptive. Do we need to remember what the nature of deception is? If God says it's deceptive, you are not immune from the deception. Getting in God's word and staying in God's church is the only way out of the blindness of self-deception. I'm going to say that again because this is crucially important. It's why the enemy always starts leading people away by isolating them so that you can go out and you can follow Jesus on your own until you start wandering off the path and following a different Jesus until you're no longer following Jesus at all. Getting into God's word is the only way you know truth. And being among God's people is the only way to stay out of the blindness of self-deception. The nature of self-deception, of blindness, is that you think that you see. 
So if you were right now believing what is false, if the enemy sowed seeds of untruth, of falsehood into your heart, how would you know? It's a real question. How would you know unless you are measuring your life and your faith by the plumb line of God's word and you have other people in your life that are saying, this is what this means. We believe this together. We hold each other accountable to it. We treasure Christ's word together. And so get into the light and let it show you what's true. Meditate in it day and night. Let it be a delight to your heart and a joy to obey. Press spirit-empowered obedience into every nook and cranny of your life and, and make sure that every part of your life is conformed to the image of Christ. And we keep doing it. We keep coming to God's word and we're transformed by the renewing of our mind and our lives become conformed to Christ. And we bring every part of our life underneath the lordship of Christ. There's no part of our life that we're shielding from God's word or from each other. Because I don't want to have part of my life where I've been deceived into thinking, no, this is okay. Don't rest or coast or make peace with sin. It will harden your heart and deceive you and make shipwreck of your faith. Get into God's word and be around his people and love the truth until every part of your life actually looks like it belongs to Christ because it does. Isaiah 7, 9 says, if you're not firm in faith, you won't be firm at all. Standing firm in that day looks like being rooted and grounded in the love of Christ and in his gospel today. You put roots down deep so that you can stand firm. But it's not just about loving the truth. Jesus, whenever he talks about his coming, there's really these two commands. And somehow in the church, they become mutually exclusive. He says, be watchful, stay awake. You don't know what time your master's coming. That's the only thing that you know about the return of Christ is that these signs have to happen first and no one knows the day or the hour. Nobody. So he says, live faithfully, watch out, be watchful. Don't be like that wicked or slothful servant that says, my master will be a long time in coming, so I don't really need to live faithfully because it's down the road. He says, stay awake. Be sober-minded for the purpose of your prayers and be faithful. So you can take, for example, two parables that Jesus told, the parable of the 10 virgins where they don't keep their lamps lit because they think my master's gonna be a long time in coming and then he shows up and they're not ready. But then there's another parable where he gives them talents and one guy makes a good return on it, another guy makes a good return on it, and then the third guy says, digs a hole, buries it. And he's rebuked and reproved for not living faithfully and making a return on what God had entrusted to him as he waited on his master's return. And so we have these twofold commands, watch out and be faithful. And they don't prohibit one another. You can be looking to the Lord's coming and be living in a way that is ready for him to return without abdicating faithfulness that would actually advance the kingdom of God in a way that the kingdom and the world is in a better place for your great-grandchildren and their great-grandchildren. And you actually think about the faithfulness of God to your, uh, to your family to a thousand generations. 
and you build and you work now to, to actually give your children something to build on until we see disciples of Christ multiplying as water covers the sea because of your faithfulness today. So love the truth. Watch out. Don't be deceived. Don't be easily swayed. And be faithful. Doing what the master has called you to do until he comes. And then last, call people to Christ and to his truth. Most people in the world take pleasure in unrighteousness rather than love the truth. Think about the story of the rich young ruler. Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus tells him clearly, you have the law. He said, yeah, I've kept all those things. I've done that. So he's, he's self-righteous, but lived a righteous life. Jesus is calling him to himself, and he sees in this man's life an obstacle to saving faith, an obstacle to surrendering all and trusting in Christ. He says he had many possessions. And so what does Jesus do? He goes right after what he would take pleasure in more than him. And he says, you need to give up all that you have and follow me. And he walked away sad. And we talk about this often. Jesus didn't chase him down and say, no, 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 wait, wait, wait. You just pray this prayer and we'll work on the details later. He was saddened and he lets him walk away because he will have no rival in your heart. He is not going to allow you to treasure sin in your life that he died to free you from He's not going to allow you to treasure those things more than him. He will be king over all or not at all. And so we are called, because we, we have to remember, remember last week, we've been justified by his grace as a gift. If it wasn't for the mercy of God, you would still be dead in your sins, alienated from the life of God, hostile in mind and engaged in evil deeds. So you don't know. It would be a dangerous thing to read this passage and to look at people's lives and to assume, oh yeah, they took pleasure in unrighteousness and they love unrighteousness rather than loving the truth. So God sent on them a deluding spirit so that they would believe what is false and there's no hope for them. So I'll move on over here. God doesn't give you that vantage point. You have no idea those whom God has chosen from before the foundation of the world and right now they're under a temporary demonic blindness until the day when they are gloriously regenerated by the power of God and given life in Christ and he uses you as a messenger of the gospel to give them life and so because we don't know where God has given people over to what they love more than him or whether he's about to lavish them with grace and kindness and bring them to life in Christ, we scatter the seed of the gospel liberally because we know it's the power of God for salvation to all who believe. Paul writes it this way in 2 Timothy chapter 2, that we're willing to endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they may also obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. And so I'd be remiss in closing if I didn't ask. In this room, where people can hear the sound of my voice online, 
listening to this message sometime in the future because of technology that's awesome. If you have no saving knowledge of Christ, then will you respond to the truth of his gospel? The language here of loving the truth is welcoming it. Will you renounce pleasure in choosing your own way, choosing yourself, loving other things more than Christ, and see today that the King of glory is offering pardon for whoever would come to him, he will cleanse you by the blood of his cross and give you life in his name. He will remove your sins from you as far as the east is from the west. And he says that God sent his son into the world so that whoever would believe on him would not perish but have eternal life. And that life is knowing him. But if you would come to him, he calls you to come and die to yourself, to be crucified with Christ so that it's no longer you who live, but Christ who lives in you. And for believers, that is your great joy and privilege. But I say with Paul, examine yourselves and see whether you are truly in the faith. And then I exhort you in the name of the Lord, get this truth into your life, into your bones. Believe it. No sound doctrine. Don't wait for another day. What you hear the Lord saying for you to do today. The writer of Hebrews tells a group full of Christians, many of you ought to be teachers by now, but instead you are in need of milk still. When you should be moving on to solid foods, how long, oh simple, will you be content with being simple? Instead of pressing on to know the Lord, to walk with him intimately, to press on to know truth, in a way where you can teach it, in a way that where you can proclaim Christ with truth and with clarity. So I'm going to pray for us, and we're going to move on to the Lord's table. This time of communion is actually a proclamation of this truth of the gospel. And it is for those who have placed their trust in Christ. And so if you have never turned from your sin from yourself and placed your trust in Christ and have been baptized into the fellowship of the church, then this meal is not for you. We invite you to stay in your seat and meditate on the things that you've heard. If the Lord is moving in your heart and you want to repent and call on the name of the Lord for salvation, we would love to talk to you after the gathering more about what the word says about coming to Christ for salvation and believing on his gospel. And we would be delighted to walk you through that and to rejoice with you. But this covenant meal is for believers who have expressed their membership in the global church in the ordinance of baptism. And we get to celebrate that Christ really has died and has risen. We get to celebrate this certain victory that we've talked about today and the fact that if we are in him, then we have life forevermore. And so, as always, the table is also a time where we examine ourselves, things in our life. Where have we coasted? Where have we taken pleasure 
in unrighteousness more than pleasure in Christ and the truth of his gospel. And so I want to invite you, before we come and gather the elements, to examine your heart as I pray and to ask the Lord to search you and try you and show you areas of your life that are not in alignment with God's word. It could be habits of grace that you're not taking up. It could be that you don't love the truth because you're not in it. But ask the Lord to search your heart and then with joy, with an assurance of pardon and forgiveness, if you're in Christ, we'll come and take the elements together. So let me pray and invite you to pray with me. Lord Jesus, you are the creator and the sustainer of life. You are our redeemer. You are the lamb slain from before the foundation of the world. You came to take away the sins of the world. We believe that you have offered yourself the just for the unjust so that you might bring us to God. Lord, we rejoice in the greatness of your salvation. We're asking for you to search our hearts to show us ways that we are not like Christ. Sin that you're convicting us of to give up, people to forgive, habits to crucify. Lord, we want to be yours all through. So would you come? God, give us the gift of conviction. Don't let us be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Lord, we want you to do for us the opposite of allowing our love to grow cold. God, would you stir us up and stoke our love for Christ and for his truth. God, come and search us and be honored as we worship you together.